Hey guys, it's Scott from fxmissions.com. Just a note, I've finished the trilogy of anthologies from the forefront, and all three books are currently available on Amazon. Welcome to From the Forefront, an FX Missions podcast with your host, Scott McClelland. Far and wide, and sometimes here at home, these bold and courageous souls that answer the call to missions have a steely metal that insists pioneering be part of their daily routine. Let's gather today and learn from those on the forefront. Here's Scott. Hi, Scott McClelland here with your FX Missions from the Forefront podcast. Thanks for joining us. Please uh, share this content uh, and our other podcast leadership moment with friends who you know might be interested in the subject of missions or leadership. Happy to be an encouragement to you. We're excited today to be joined by Kerry Olson. Good morning, Kerry. Good morning from Mexico City. <laughs> Great to have you on here. Yeah. And so what's the season like? I know we're in a weird season in the world right now, but what's the season like in Mexico City right now? Is it spring? What, what's What's going on there? Well, we do have the four seasons here, although we're uh, quite high in elevation, almost 8,000 feet. So, um, you know, it's about 70 degrees all year round where we live. But mm -hmm. when we come out of the mountains, it gets even warmer. But we enjoy being a little bit cooler because of the elevation. Yeah, I, I love the weather in Mexico City. Of course, I'm overwhelmed by Mexico City. I got to say that. I've been through there many, many times. And I... I still feel like I'm overmatched, <laughs> especially if I'm driving in Mexico City. But you've been there a while. I think you, you mentioned, is it 30 or 30 plus years? 34 years. Um, 34 years. First yeah. 10 years we were wow. in northern Mexico and then uh, the last uh, almost 25 here in the big city. Big city. Yeah, absolutely. But you're not from Mexico City. And you're, to me, you know, I'm I'm from Texas, so. Hopefully not everything that normally infers, but uh, our accents are different is, is what I'm trying to say. So I, I think I'm the one with the accent, but you're from the Midwest or maybe a little North Midwest. Huh? Yeah, my family comes from uh, Minnesota originally. And when I was about 12, they moved out to the West Coast, but I was only there for for my formative years, about 10 years old to 17. And, and then I then I left to the mission field. So basically, wow. most of my life's been on the field. Wow. Well, so, you know, this is, my mind goes in so many directions and there's a lot to get to. I appreciate you being on here, but anyone who's been on the field kind of in terms of the length of time you have, you've seen a lot, you know, the changes and approach and the way people are, you know, syncing up to the work in our times. And then, you know, there's, a, I just, I feel the pain of, Probably you've seen a lot of people come and go from the field as well. It's very unusual that someone would would have that kind of persistent history abroad for the gospel. Does something come to mind you'd like to mention about that? Well, it is becoming more unusual to have long-term missionaries on the, on the field. Of course, I had numerous short-term experiences before I went long-term, and I think that's the joy of missions is that, you know, short-term leads to long-term. You know, most of my life has been uh, ministry life, has been mobilizing nationals to go long term as well. And of course, some of those go short term and midterm, but that's really where my where my heart is. We really can't understand a culture until we learn the language 
And, you know, learning a language uh, is not something that's done in a, in 12 months time. It takes a long time. And through learning mm. language, you, you understand the culture. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to learn Spanish. <laughs> that's one of the easier languages and I know you do well. <laughs> I just think that's funny. <laughs> I, I'm doing better. Let's say that, but. Over the last three or four years, my Spanish has gotten, I think, more useful, more usable, maybe is a, is a good way to say it. But it's such a, a beautiful language, obviously. Complexity is, you know, it's probably not Mandarin, but it's north of English when it comes to complexity, at least from <laughs> my point of view. But it, I, I love it. It's great. And I, I love, certainly love the culture of Latin America. So very, very cool. Did you start out in Spanish-speaking environments for missions? Well, uh, actually, um, you know, during my years of study, first in YWAM, which is the University of the Nations now in Kona, Hawaii, I was back there in right out of high school, 1977 to 79. I actually thought that I'd be with YWAM in Argentina my entire life, but I was just ah. there for for a little less than a year, and I knew that God had called me to Latin America. That had been confirmed through a number of ways. Even when I was young, my first short-term experiences were actually in Brazil with teen missions when I was 15 and 16 years old. But then uh, God mm. uh, brought us to uh, my wife and I. We studied at Bethany Global University in Minneapolis. That's actually where we met. Bethany has an internship program, which is very crucial in missions training to have not just head knowledge, but have a field experience. And so I mm -hmm. spent a year, as my wife did, in here in Mexico City, actually, in 1981, 82. Okay. And, and yeah, I, I learned Spanish at an early age, 17 years old, youth of the mission in Argentina during the World Cup games, and then was sent okay. here in my yep. early 20s as well. Wow. Yeah. So for those of us who aren't fluent in more than one language, you know, the curiosities abound. But I'm guessing you think in whatever language is being spoken in, in the context you're in. Uh, is that a right way to say that? I don't know. I think the real goal is becoming a bi, uh, bicultural person. And of course, to be a bicultural person, you're bilingual. And somebody right. actually said that, how can you tell you're a bicultural person? And a good example is you know, you have point A, maybe my, my country of origin, the United States, and point B, Mexico, as being my host culture. And you're usually happiest when you're in between one or the other. You know, so if I'm on a plane and I had my chilaquiles for breakfast in the morning here in Mexico and I'm flying to the U.S. and going to meet a family member, that's when I'm the happiest. You're enjoying both cultures, but a bicultural person really is one who knows how to operate in, in both cultures. Excellent. Yeah, that's a that's a little bit different characterization. Of course, you know, I've thought about it in terms of culturally fluent versus linguistically fluent. And I know that's a different level. You meet people who can speak a language, but they don't they can't sync up with the environment or with people of that culture. Well, so I wrote that down bicultural, bilingual and then cultural fluency is uh, able to flow in that in the cultures pretty cool reference. So you're living in Mexico City now. You've been there many years. You've worked in missions, you know, your entire life. Give us, you can give us a, a quick rundown. You, you mentioned YWAM and some of the other stuff. 
in the beginning. You want to give us a quick summary of what and lead us up to the now in terms of how you're serving? Well, you know, I've always considered myself a mobilizer. And I'll give you a good example of what really missions mobilization is in terms of a person that mobilizes others towards missions. Ralph Winter, the missionologist out of California, he's passed away a number of years ago, but I love what he said is, is that, you know, a mobilizer is someone who, if you see a, a large building on fire, which is more strategic, getting a pail of water and trying to put out the, the flames by yourself or calling up a hundred sleeping firemen. And I guess that's really been my job in essence is, you know, waking up the sleeping firemen inside the church and mm. mobilizing others to go. Another thing that he said is that any missionary who can mobilize a hundred other missionaries to the field should be doing that rather than going themselves. And so we, that's what we've done. You know, we wow. were missions pastors of the largest church here in Mexico for almost two decades. I've been in a new season in my life that we'll probably talk about here in a little while, the last four or five years. But those were very rich years just mobilizing Mexicans to go to North Africa and China and India and and lots of different places. And and many of them are still on the field. And so a lot of what we have done has been mobilizing and, and not just outside of Mexico, inside Mexico as well. We have graduates that have gone to the unreached indigenous peoples here within Mexico as well. Yes, absolutely. I think that's something we don't, in the States, we don't think about it so much. You know, the there I don't know the number of tribes that persist in Mexico. I have recently met a, a friend who, you know, is working with an indigenous people group there and kind of freshened up my thoughts about it, got some more knowledge about that. But I'm sure there's an, a vast number of tribes that, that maintain their own culture there in Mexico. So it's certainly a mission field opportunity there as well. Yeah, there's about 300 different languages here in Mexico. Most of them are in Oaxaca and, and Chiapas. But, you know, if you, you count the Mixtecos 60 times because they have 60 dialects and the Zapotecos 60 times, mm-hmm. they have that many dialects why we come up with an excess of 300 uh, people groups here in the country. Wow, that's amazing. I remember the first time I was ever on a team that was twice translated. (laughs) That was pretty cool. I mean, we were in the remote mountains of Oaxaca. This would have been more than a decade ago now, but we were translated from English to Spanish to one of those dialects. Uh Uh, I can't remember which one, but it was one of the mountain dialects in Oaxaca. And Mm -hmm. it sounded, this language sounded so fascinating to me. I was just, the sound and the way it was rendered, like nothing I'd ever heard, you know, just so cool. And the culture, of course, is just as rich. We were with those folks for for some days and really got to appreciate them. So Mm -hmm. that's a blessing. Huge blessing. So you you touched on something that's pretty important to my heart as well. I, I want to be in some ways a, a mobilizer as well to try to encourage Latin Americans to be active, step out in the world of missions. And you're way ahead of me on that. <laughs> I got to say it. But I, I'm, I'm certainly hopeful to be a, a small force there. 
does a story come to mind of, of maybe one or two of the missionaries you've seen sent from Mexico where they're working? I know when I was with you there in the early, I guess it was maybe 12 or 13, 2012 or 13, we looked at a video of a guy who started a Mexican restaurant in China. I remember that story pretty clearly. Okay. But what, what comes to mind when you think about Latin Americans uh, working in the foreign field, maybe some examples or just some things that you've seen to be important in that regard? Yeah, well, I think the first example I could give is of Mexico itself. I have a graduate that, um, one of many, but a graduate named Alejandro that's working in the state of Oaxaca. And he has one of the only missionary training schools in Oaxaca to train Mexicans to work with the unreached indigenous in Oaxaca. Mm. Um, There are people groups in Mexico, indigenous groups that have large percentages of Christians, you know, that go back 40, 50 years ago, that there was just a real move of God and and a real response. Mm. But Alejandro is working in a region where there are Mixtec tribes uh, of 1,500 people, and they're the only ones that speak that dialect. And uh, there's not a single Christian. The Trique Indians are very close to where he's at as well, and he has workers amongst the Trique. But he's a guy that is just kind of replicating what I've done since I've been to Mexico. And and I should probably throw in here, too, sort of a leadership principle is that, you know, we, we teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. And uh, that's the cool thing about being a mobilizer is that I've been able to reproduce myself into others. And uh, when I see a guy like Alejandro, who has the exact same vision, and of course, my wife and I make a commitment of going there you know, once a year to teach and sometimes twice, that's just a great example mm-hmm. of a guy who's who's doing it. So uh, Alejandro has 20 teams in 20 different indigenous areas and uh, just doing a, a fantastic job in, in a very difficult area here in Mexico, a pocket that is still unreached. And then I could just give multiple, you know, examples of others that are that are out. I, I did a PowerPoint not too long ago of 21 of our students that have married uh, foreigners, and 20 of the 21 are girls, single girls who have ah. married guys from ah. uh, England, from Equatorial Guinea, Africa, Senegal, France, wow. Germany. And that that's really a great way to get to the field because, you know, you marry a a foreign national and you go there to serve with them and you have children that are born and you just don't come back home. Right. You totally absorb into the context. Wow. That's powerful. I've got three daughters myself, no sons, So I totally can relate to what you're saying right now. That, that makes a lot of sense to me and, and is also inspiring. That is very neat. Thank God for, for his grace and for the advance of the gospel. Super thankful for what you guys have done and your contribution over time. You know, it's been meaningful in so many lives. If we can shift gears here a little bit, I'd like to dig in some to what's your current assignment. You're working, I think you you were involved with Bethany Global University, I guess, as it's now called, but mm-hmm. before it was, it was, has a rich history. I know a little bit about Bethany's history, but I'd like to talk a, a little bit about your current assignment and you know, what you guys are up to. I do see you, obviously we're friends on Facebook. I see you dotting the globe, not at this moment of recording, obviously the world's shut down for the virus, but normally year over year, you're all 
over the place. And I'm impressed by your resilience. What is taking you to, I don't know how many countries you went to last year, but I know it was a number. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, I felt a few years back, actually five years ago, that God had a new chapter in our lives. And, you know, we still continue to be in touch with people that we've sent from the megachurch here that are serving in different areas, but also others that are with other denominations or churches that are serving around the world or here in Mexico. We're, we're definitely in contact with a lot of them. But five years ago, Bethany opened a door for me with my experience in, in mobilization and pastoring missionaries around the world to be their uh, research coordinator, the international research coordinator for Bethany. And that's part of an alliance that we have called GlobeServe. And GlobeServe mm -hmm. is an alliance of 300 missionary training schools around the world. I've had the opportunity to start two mission schools here in Mexico. Really, they were within the context of a Bible school in, in both uh, contexts. So I've had you know experience in missions training and mobilization, but we have a school. Our main university is in Minneapolis, Bethany Global University, as you mentioned, but we have a smaller school in Singapore, and that's called Bethany International University. You won't find hardly anything online because it's a bit clandestine, but not that much, but it exclusively trains Africans and Asians on a master's and doctoral level. Mm. And get your master's, you have to go back to your country of origin and start a mission school. And <laughs> all of the uh, mission schools that we have in the network by a few that have been started by Bethany missionaries, uh, like myself, but the large majority are Africans and Asians. So I get to visit a lot of these schools, but really my job description is not so much with working with the schools as much as it is as tracking unreached people groups where the graduates are working. Mm, right. Yeah. The research coordination piece to me is very interesting. Is your research directly connected to the unreached people groups element? Is that what you're researching or, or what do you... What's the focus on that? Yeah. Well, um, in this alliance called GlobeServe, you know, it's been around for about 25 years. Bethany's an organization that this year is is turning 75 years old. And, you know, I get to work wow. with the partnership uh, that we have worldwide made up of nationals, as I, as I mentioned. And mm -hmm. the last 25 years, we've had a number of projects. The first project was just to start 100 schools or locate the 100 schools where we knew we had people. So we were kind of halfway there when we started the first initiative called Go 100. And then we uh, moved to another initiative after reaching 100 training schools around the world. The second initiative was called Field 5000, and that was fielding 5,000 workers from these hundred schools, actually, in addition to a hundred. And now we know that they're over 300. But the last wow. five years, I've worked with an initiative called Engage 500. And we got mm. together in one of our triennial meetings and we asked all of our partners, representatives that were there, how many people groups are you engaging? And when I say people groups, they really were truly unreached people groups which mm -hmm. the definition for an unreached people group is 2% or less evangelical. Mm. And we found that we had 269 engagements, missionaries placed in 269 unreached people groups around the world. Well, we didn't know where those were. And so I've mm. been researching those groups, but probably the most important part of Engage 500 are the additional 
231 groups to, you know, come up to 500 people groups that the last five years we've been working on. And so I get to go out and visit some of the workers that are on the front line sometimes because of my American passport and my light skin, I can't get into places and I have to go yeah. in the back of a suburban at night or, you know, <laughs> I've been in some dicey situations, let me tell you. I can bet. But wow. I think one of the exciting things that has happened in the last few years is that we're not just, you know, finding information, qualitative information as to where these groups are. And, you know, I get to tell the stories that I can't publish on Facebook usually. But, yeah. you know, I, I write articles and take pictures. I love photography. I was going to mention that because you have some, not only do you love it, it loves you back. I mean, you yeah. have some incredible photos. Uh, and I was going to ask you if you have a place that we could send people to see those, you know, in the public sphere. I don't I don't know. I know I see them on Facebook and I see all these people groups I've never heard of and stuff like that. But yeah. is there a place for people to get access well, other, to your photos? My Facebook page, I do have a page in Spanish that really hasn't been up to date. That The address is idportolomundo.com. That in Spanish is going to all the world.com in mm. Spanish. I D por todo el mundo dot com, and I have some pictures there. But kind of going back to the the research, one of the things that we've done so that we're not just stuck into the quantitative mode is that with each of the people groups that I get to visit, we have a qualitative scale. I'll just mention real quickly what the scale is. You know, it's from one to seven, mm -hmm. and when we have an adoption, when a member of ours says, you know, I want to adopt this unreached people group. I still don't have anybody to prepare to send there, but they make a commitment just the same as we would adopt a child. And really that's the commitment that it requires because mm -hmm. you're, you know, making a commitment to send and support a worker there until churches are planted. Of course, that that is level one, the adoption level. Level two is that you have missionaries placed amongst that unreached people group. And of course, that's what we've um, been looking to do with the 500 groups around the world. We're just finishing it up. I'm about five unreached people groups away, and I'm constantly in contact with our partners to make sure that we fulfill our goal by June of this year. And that's not that far away. And, and we're, we're there unofficially. But that's level two is when you see missionaries placed amongst an unreached people group. Level three, again, talking about this qualitative scale is that early disciples mm -hmm. are made. And we worked with an unreached people group here in Mexico called the PAME years ago, the first group that I'd ever had contact with here in Mexico, really. And they were definitely at level three because I met the Bible translator who spent 40 years with this group. And all she had done is uh, translate two gospels in 40 years, and she had three converts. So wow. disciples being made is level three. But, you know, when you're at level three, what, what are you trying to do? Well, you're trying to start the first church, and that's level four. Right. Level four is planning the first church. Level five is that that indigenous church plants another church. You're seeing more than one church in existence. And then level six is something that we're going to be focusing on a lot more, and that is a church planting movement begins. And sadly, not many people see church planting movements. I don't know if you're familiar with the the discipleship making movement term and the church planting yeah. uh, term. Somewhat, like, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
that's that's level six. Level seven is that that people group now sends their missionaries to another people group that's unreached. But we're wow. seeing a lot of people, you know, jumping from level five, where you have more than one church, and then they're sending missionaries to other unreached people groups without going through stage six and seeing a real movement take place. And I uh, mm. would like to spend probably our next goal after Engage 500 focusing on uh, disciple-making movements. And we have a number of partners that are just fantastic examples of that, but we're asking ourselves, and we've got a couple guys that that are really experts on this subject that are that are helping us, and, and that'll be our, our next goal the next five years probably. Wow. Well, I would love to have, I don't know if you've got just a summary of that scale. Of course, I was taking some notes here. I'm sure I didn't get it all down. I love that scale, by the way, extremely mm-hmm. well thought through, it seems, and sort of the progression makes a lot of sense. I would love to maybe get a copy of that scale and include it in our podcast notes that we're going to send as this publishes Absolutely. along with your other links and such. Wow. That's, that's powerful. Yeah. I'm getting it prepared for you right now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned that some people are jumping from five to seven. How does, how does that, what do you do in that case? I mean, do you say, hold on, let's take a few steps back or <laughs> do you celebrate or do you do both? I don't, I don't know. Well, we have a guy that has done his doctorate on this subject as to the catalysts that God is using to start movements. And you look at, you know, some of the, some of the things that you need in a team to see a movement start. Of course, Mm. everybody needs to have the same vision. That's number one. If you're in an organization or, you know, just it applies to, churches and organizations is if people aren't on the same page, it's not going to happen. Right. I can go back to the testimony that we have of, of Bethany Fellowship, which has turned into Bethany International. And of course, the college has changed its name a few times over the years. But, you know, they had a vision to train, send and support 100 missionaries. And this was Bethany Fellowship in the Bethany early days. Fellowship 75 years ago, you know, you had five families that got together and they sold everything that they had. They took all the money that they had in the in their bank accounts and put it in a pool, lived in a community. They actually, you know, sold their homes, quit their jobs. Mm-hmm. All of them were businessmen. And one actually retained his job for a few years. He was the vice president of a large corporation there in Minneapolis. But they all moved to a mansion in downtown Minneapolis with the goal of, of sending 100 missionaries. And they really didn't have that much experience. But, you know, I I look back at the commitment of those five families and then the success of families and individuals that have been a part of the organization. And it's it's just been a a, a great testimony of giving everything you have to fulfill the vision because they literally, literally did it. As you were highlighting this uh, necessity and the catalyst part about a synchronized vision or everyone being on the same page, you know, I think we can somehow trace back the impact in the generations that followed them. That clarity was so powerful. And, you know, the clarity, not only of the perception or, you know, what God was leading them to do, but the 
you know, sort of the commitment as well. They saw it clearly and they they didn't have a small, uh, like a marginal type of commitment to it. It was all in. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, wow, the shockwaves that have poured out from that that fact. So powerful. So powerful. And this was, I guess, the seed that was planted in, in some ways of saying it that is now it's got branches in every in nearly every nation and a whole lot of unbreached people groups as you're as you're attesting. I think that's encouraging to me, but it's also challenging, which I think is maybe the signature of grace. <laughs> I don't know, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm challenged there. Did you want to say anything else about the catalyst piece? What it what is required? I, I know you mentioned a few of those elements, but I I want to make sure we hear you out on that. Yeah, well, you know. Boy, when it comes to catalysts, there's so many things that that I could say. You really need to get one of our guys on that has a doctorate in this particular area. But, <laughs> Would uh, love to. Would love yeah, to. And I, and I could certainly set that up. But you know, they've gone through and they they've looked at what are the characteristics of a successful catalyst who has been used by God to start movements. And when we say a movement, the definition that we're using, a lot of people are using, is a, a thousand people. And that's gone mm-hmm. deep to three or four generations. You know, generations doesn't mean you need to wait 40 years, but it, it's talking about the spiritual fruit, you know, that I have a disciple that's made it makes another disciple that makes another disciple. And mm-hmm. really, that's the heart of the Great Commission. I teach a lot on Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the classic Great Commission verse where Jesus says that, you know, he's given us all authority in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and he talks about four verbs. It says, go, make disciples, baptize, and teach all things. And, you know, have mm-hmm. a lot of people, especially young people with maybe a lot of zeal and, and not a lot of Bible knowledge that would probably say that the go part is the most important. But when you look at Matthew 28, the imperative verb there is make a disciple. Because we can go, but if you just go, you're, you you could just be um, missionary tourism. Baptize a lot of people, but if they just get wet and they don't have a transformed life, you know, they just got wet. And, you know, the teaching, you know, we can fill our head with lots of knowledge and teach or be taught. Yeah. But really the central part of the Great Commission is making a disciple that makes a disciple that makes a disciple. And so that's why we look at it at four generations that if you look at Matthew 28, it really does have that four generations built into the text there. So that's what we're talking about. So, but the catalyst is the one who, you know, we look Mm -hmm. at what is a fruitful worker. I was just on a webinar a couple nights ago with an organization that works exclusively in the Muslim world we were looking at fruitful practices for movements and, you know, they have several categories, you know, fruitful practices is that relate to society and to seekers themselves in the Muslim context that, you know, we call them seekers in other contexts too, um, related mm-hmm. believers and, and to leaders and communication methods and fruitful teams. And what are the characteristics of a uh, uh, fruitful churches? I've actually got that right in front of me right now. I've mentioned a few about the characteristics of a fruitful church. You know, a fruitful church is one that uses the Bible as a central source for life. And we're talking about a cross-cultural context. So worship, they use worship in indigenous forms of expression. They don't come in with their own ideas and say, 
you need to use a pipe organ here because that's what our denominations used. You know, they know how to mm-hmm. contextualize. Uh, they practice mm-hmm. baptism and, and they network together. They govern themselves. And we're seeing a lot of growth around the world in church settings that are not like you and I know the church. We live just a block and a half away from our Mexican church here that has three services of 3,000 on, on Sunday morning. And, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're in the Dallas area. There's a lot of mega churches around there, too. But sure are. The problem comes when we try and replicate that in other cultures, because probably most of the church today worldwide is not a big auditorium with a fantastic worship group and a, a skinny pant, skinny <laughs> pant pastor giving some great cultural examples from movies. I tend to see that a lot with Americans, but really most of the churches worldwide and the churches that I get to visit after being in the context of a mega church for so many years is a small group of Christians, 8, 10, 12, that are in a living room and they're probably singing in a low voice because if the neighbors hear why they're in jail and if you're a foreigner, Mm. you're kicked out of the country. And that's the context of the church worldwide. And maybe that's what we're learning right now as we go through this situation with with the coronavirus, is that we need to be a little more creative and understand the church isn't isn't where we go. The church is who we are. Man, that that is, is such an inspiring description that you make there, and I think a valid one. I think so much of our movements and our times. I'm talking about my home culture, you know, or in the U.S. I'll say. I think it's also true in maybe a little bit less of a sense in other places where the culture's been exported. But, you know, there's a hollow ring to so much of, of what we're doing. And I think it, this is an opportunity for us to, you know, listen to the, the dissonance <laughs> of the sound we're producing and, and make some adjustments. Mm-hmm. I, I pray that's our takeaway. I pray we do that. But the, the richness of that description. Thank you for that. That's very encouraging. And I think it's also inspiring to those of us who are looking for the real in the midst of the shiny, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very powerful. One thing I wanted to make sure and get to, and thank you for all those things. You speak a lot, as you'd mentioned to me, about the difference between missions and evangelism. And I want to make sure and take a minute on that as we're we probably got five minutes left. I wanted to make sure and give you a chance to talk some about that specifically. Sure. I published a book a couple of years ago, only in Spanish. And uh, I'll get a copy to you, Scott. Okay. Uh, I'll read it very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the title is Not Everybody is a Missionary. And uh, that's just to get people's attention. The subtitle is that, but everybody's called to fulfill the Great Commission in one way or another. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I know that evangelistically, I love what Lauren Cunningham from YWAM says. He says, either everybody's a missionary or a mission field. And, and that's mm. true in an evangelistic sense. But in a missional sense, in a cross-cultural strategic sense, that's not true. If everybody's a missionary, that means that every Christian in the world can stay where they're at. Nobody needs to go from point A to point B and the Great Commission will be fulfilled by itself. No. Yeah. God is mm. still moving 
in the hearts of Americans to go to the ends of the earth. He's still sending Americans to China and Americans to India and Indians to Myanmar and people from Myanmar mm -hmm. to uh, the neighboring state of Laos. And, and so that's one of the things that I, I find in the local church, especially in Latin America, but it's really quite universal, is a confusion with uh, the term evangelism and missions. And if we call everything missions, we'll never be involved in what really missions are. And so a real simple definition of evangelism and missions is that evangelism is raising up the church where the church is already at. And missions is raising up the church where the church does not exist or where it's just taking root. And if we use that as a definition, and you know, I've got a lot of Bible verses that I could quote, but probably the main sure. one would be, you know, Romans uh, fifteen twenty, that just shows the passion of the Apostle Paul. You know, he says, "I made it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, and not to build on another man's foundation." So, yeah. you know, putting another church up on the other side of the street in Dallas, Texas, where there's another church on the other side of the street is not strategic. And a lot of what we call missions is really going to places where the church already exists. And so that's why I've been so excited about, you know, in working with unreached people groups around the world and getting to tribal groups where there still is not the first Christian hmm. or getting to a place where the church is just beginning to start. And that really is the passion uh, of the Apostle Paul. But sad to say, you know, a lot of pastors just don't have that passion. And mm. so that's where missions comes into play. And probably only one in 100 or one or two or 300 in a congregation are really going to have that apostolic call to go where there is no church. But that really has become my passion and my life's calling is to raise up others to go to the difficult places because we've gone to all the easy places the difficult yeah. places one does it remain you know the muslim world the buddhist world the hindu world and the tribal world and so that's uh, where we need to put our put our focus to finish the great commission hmm. the way you characterize that is it's like a fresh a cold cup of water splashed right in the face of so much that's going on you know uh, uh, maybe you know to drink as well but it's I think that's helpful to, to give us some perspective on the way we're misusing our, our characterizations. And it's good to understand that, I think, and also bring that understanding to bear on our behaviors. You see so much of what's going on in our times is trying to legitimize, you know, ourselves in an expression of something we find familiar or desirable not to throw everyone under the bus in terms of what people are doing for the gospel, but to have that clarity and to continue the pursuit, you know, that Paul was motivated by, as you mentioned there in Romans 15, I think it's, it's uh, maybe a little more foreign. I think a lot of times we use titles and descriptions of ourselves in ministry, you know, as a means of self-congratulation rather than a functional description of what it is that we our hearts beating to do and and what we're trying to see as a result of our lives very encouraging yeah well i enjoyed your comment there too just uh, so many people are caught up in titles and it, it's not about having a title it's really the function as you mentioned you know and i'll go back to mm -hmm. the statement that we teach what we know but we reproduce who we are 
Wow. That speaks. It needs no further elaboration, but I think that is very real and demonstrable. I think that's what we see happening. Lord, raise us up to that level of stature of courage and resilience to see the Great Commission in every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Lord, help us. Powerful stuff, Gary. Really, I'm just gripped by your who you are and what, what God's doing with your life. I really, really appreciate the chance to talk to you about it. I feel like we've touched only the surface and more to come here for sure. Look forward to seeing you again. There's an off chance I'll be in Mexico City in the late summer. So I'll, as those plans develop, if you're not in the <laughs> in the far reaches of the world by then, maybe we can see each other. It'd be great to love to. Great to have a time together as well. Please give my greetings to your wife there with you. I'm super thankful. Anything, I'd like to just do a few more things here as we're closing out. Anything else that you wanted to mention that you didn't have a chance to? And I also want to, if people want to find out more about what you do or your organization you're working with, you know, something of a contact thread for them to find out more, that would be good. Yeah, I'll prepare that information so you can put it on the podcast link with these seven Mm -hmm. pages as well. Awesome. Thank I'll you. Where I have some pictures. So, yeah, be glad Great. to be here. Very, very good. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I'm stirred. I can say that. And I believe that'll be the effect. And it certainly is my hope that we who are hearing these words will be stirred for purposeful expression. So many distractions in the world around us to keep us from even a partial expression of uh, God's intent and when he gave us life. <laughs> so uh, I uh, pray we'll be stirred to get to that place of fruitfulness that we're called to. So uh, just if you don't mind, Carrie, would you, would you mind to close us out in prayer? Be glad to. Heavenly Father, you, uh, you say in your word to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he sends forth workers to his harvest. And I know, Lord, that that's a, a very dangerous prayer because if we're truly doing it, we just might hear you say, you go. And so, Lord, we just want to tell you once again that we're willing to go wherever you send us. Help us, Lord, to be aware of those that have already been sent and to be a blessing to them. Thank you for Scott and his ministry and just the blessing that he's been here in Mexico and other countries as well. Blessing nationals. Help us to raise up our eyes, Lord, and as we raise up our eyes, we, our eyes fall away from ourselves and we begin to see the world as you see it. And we desire to see many, many more workers sent to the difficult places, Lord. Would you raise them up in the United States? Would you raise them up in Mexico? Would you raise them up in many other countries and other cultures, Lord? And uh, we know that all of this is so that we can fulfill your great commission that still has not been completed. And uh, with eyes of faith, we thank you for what you are going to do. And we bless you because you are the Lord of the harvest. In Jesus' name. Amen, Carrie. Thank you so much. Thanks for that. Thanks for your encouragement and for your service for the King and his kingdom. And look forward to catching up with you soon. And maybe we'll get you back on to tell some more of the stories as they're unfolding in your work. Uh, We certainly pray for you and for the efforts you're expending and for your fruitfulness. We'll watch for those notes, get them attached so folks can see a little bit more about what you guys are up to and, and how to find out more. Many blessings to you, bro. Thank you. I am Scott McClellan with your FX Missions 
From the Forefront podcast. Please rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast content. Thank you for being a part of FX Missions from the Forefront. You've been listening to From the Forefront, hosted by FX Missions' Scott McClelland. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like more information on today's guest, please go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fxmissions. Please rate our show on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. If you know someone who should be a guest on our podcast, we're currently reviewing candidates for upcoming episodes. Please submit their name, affiliation, and an essay of why their story needs to be told to info at fxmissions.com. And of course, you can always follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website at fxmissions.com. From Scott McClelland and the whole team here at FX Missions, thanks for listening. Till next time, have a great day. Thank you.